Let's turn back this morning to the book of Romans in the 10th chapter. Last time we were together in the book of Romans, we got up to that first verse of chapter 10 in the context in which Paul is making clear what it was that in the nation of Israel brought them not to believe the gospel um, or brought them actually not to um, attain righteousness because they didn't pursue it in the proper way. They were not pursuing righteousness by faith, but as it were, he says, as based upon works. And in the middle of Paul's statement about the reasons that Israel did not attain to righteousness, um, he expresses once again, as he did in chapter 9, the, the, the uh, desire of his heart with reference to Israel's salvation. Remember he said in chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. His heart's um, posture, his heart's sentiment towards the unbelief of Israel was that of anguish, great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, even desiring or wishing that he himself were cut off from Christ, accursed for the sake of his brothers, that they would be saved. Now in chapter 10 and verse 1, he again addresses his heart. His heart's desire, he says, as well as his prayer to God, is that they, that is the Israelites, would be saved, that they may be saved. And now he's going to tell us a little bit about something of the deficiency in the people of Israel, in his countrymen, in his brethren according to the flesh, and in terms of something that he sees in them that in some senses is likely good, although it may be something of a note of bad or evil in them, because he uses this term zeal. He says, I bear them witness in verse 2 that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And the matter of zealousness in the Old Testament, it has a long history of people zealous for God. And in many times, in many ways, the zeal for God was a good thing. It led people to defend the God of Israel, to uh, take action in his behalf. But sometimes that action was a violent reaction. Remember the zeal of Phineas in the book of Numbers, when there was a compromise situation with an Israelite man and a Moabite woman. And he took a javelin and he took it and he thrust it through both of them, killed them in one shot. And the scripture speaks about his zeal. In fact, the zeal that brought righteousness. And perhaps there were people in Israel that thought, hey, that's the sort of zeal we need to have for our God. The sort of zeal that's a murderous zeal kind of like the zeal that Paul had with regard to Christians, looking to have them placed in, in jeopardy, imprisoned and put to death. And remember, Paul speaks about his zeal in uh, Philippians. In uh, Philippians chapter 3, I believe he speaks of zeal in terms of his persecution of the church. In other words, when you're zealous for God, when you have a desire for the honor and the glory of God, uh, and you operate in zeal, you're going to go to great lengths to the protection, preservation of the honor of your God, even if it means, even if it means you take a javelin and pierce them through. And so Paul says, with his own background and his own training and his own advantages as an Israelite, he speaks of himself as a Pharisee. In verse 6 he says, As to zeal, 
a persecutor of the church. He was out for blood. He was looking to pursue them and persecute them. And perhaps he uses the term zeal, that they have a zeal for God, fully knowing that they were the source of much of his aggravation and grief in ministry, as they were zealous persecutors of the people of God. But I don't think he's necessarily doing that. I mean, there's a sense in which, yes, you have to give people credit that their beliefs are such that they would actually take the sort of actions that Paul took in defense of his religion. And sometimes we think of the Jehovah's Witnesses out and peddling their watchtowers and doing all that they do in all kinds of weather. They're probably out there today with their little stand about offering false advertising, by the way, when they say Bible study. No, no, no. Watchtower study is what they ought to be advertising. They don't study the Bible. They study the doctrine of the watchtower. But out, nonetheless, they're out there in pursuit of their the honor of their faith and of their religion. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we certainly decry the savagery of Islamic terrorism that takes people's lives. But there's actually something of a commendable, we might think, if it didn't lead to violence, zeal for their God. But in the, in the Bible, sometimes zeal did lead to violence. But I think Paul is looking to say, no, no, their, their, their zeal is really for their God. And sometimes it manifests itself in inappropriate ways. But you've got to give them kudos. You've got to give them some credit for the fact that there is this zealousness. They have a zeal for God. There's only one problem in their zeal. It's not according to knowledge. Uh, it's a wrongly placed zeal. It's a wrongly directed zeal. It's, it's a zeal in a wrong cause. They're after something that's not based upon knowledge. It's not based upon the truth of the divine revelation. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God, he says. This is their problem. The zeal that's uh, not according to knowledge is that they're ignorant of the proper way of righteousness, this way of faith. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness, trusting in the promises of God. Um, but they forsook that. They were ignorant of that kind of righteousness based upon divine word, divine speaking, uh, based upon uh, or, or directed towards faith in the God who speaks. And then they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They're looking to fashion a righteousness of their own works. Kind of like Adam and Eve trying to make clothes out of fig leaves. I mean, it just doesn't really do the job. You need a righteousness that is God-fashioned and God-shaped, God-authored, um, and pleasing in His sight. Something that God gives credit to, but they were looking to do it their way. The old Burger King commercial, have it your way. Uh, no, you, you really, in religious things, you can't have it your way. You have to submit to God's way. They did not submit to God's righteousness. God has revealed a way of righteousness, a way of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from the law, as he said in Romans chapter 3. Now Paul makes a statement that uh, is one of those statements that gets kicked about and bandied and dissected and the people make all kinds of um, absurdities about what Paul is saying in the words of verse 4 when he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the problem that gets so much attention among Christian writers and uh, commentators is that the, the word for end or telos, 
uh, telescope. You can scope to the end of the heavens through, uh, through a telescope. Uh, um, uh, is this word end can also mean goal. Telos can mean the goal of something as well as the end of something. And some people say, well, there's probably a combination of things because uh, the picture is given of the Christian race and that the Christian race, when you hit the finish line, you finish the end of the race and it's also the, the goal that you're headed towards. Except in Philippians, the goal for the Christian is the mark of the high calling of God in Christ. And the finish line doesn't seem to be in this life. It seems to be in the life which is to come. But Paul's talking about a goal or an end that has to do with the righteousness that we have today, now, in our life, and that becomes the basis of the race. We run the race being made righteous. And we need to see that Christ is the end, perhaps, but what does that mean? Does that mean the law has nothing at all to say to us? There's one sense in which the law doesn't, but it's only as the law is viewed as the Jews were viewing the law. The Jews were viewing the law as a means of obtaining righteousness. This is how we get right with God. This is how we have God become favorable to us. Is we take the law that he has given and we look to obey it. Now, obedience to the law is not a bad thing. But the point of the law and obedience to it is that God gave it in a context in which he delivered uh, the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage. There was this act of grace that preceded. There was this act of rescue, deliverance of the people from slavery. And God said, you've seen how I've taken you on eagle's wings and I've brought you to myself. I've entered into the covenant with you and now obey my words. But you obey his words on the basis of an act of grace he's already achieved for you. There's already been a rescue. You're not in Egypt any longer. You've been brought out of bondage. You've been brought out of slavery. And you're brought out of slavery to serve. And that's really the picture of the Christian life. Is that the law can't get us out of Egypt. The law can't get us out of bondage. The law can't deliver us from slavery. The law can't bring us out of our guilt. The law can't save us. Only Christ can save us. But once God does this act of delivering us in Jesus, there is this matter of being in law to Christ. We're under Christ's yoke. Uh, Learn of me, he says. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. But yet there is a yoke and there is a burden. We're brought under submission to Jesus. He that has my commandments and does them, he says in John, he it is that loves me. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. We're not cut off from law. We're under law to Christ. And Christ's law is really not much different than the Old Testament law spoken on Mount Sinai. In fact, on Mount Sinai... Uh, the law that was given, Jesus says, is summarized in these two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And upon these, the whole law and the prophets, Jesus says, hangs. But Jesus doesn't say the law is a substitute. I'm sorry, the love is a substitute for the law. He says love is the fulfillment of the law. The law love is the summary of the law. The things that the law demands is love to God and love to neighbor. And so, love does not cease as we become believers in Jesus. Um, love is something we're required towards God and neighbors, the great commandments of the law. So the law still continues, but it continues as a, 
guide that directs the, the redeemed. It, it, it shows us what God desires of us. And, uh, but the whole motivation for the doing of the law is not to make us uh, ourselves righteous. It's not to fashion for ourselves a clothing of righteousness. There's a clothing of righteousness that's been given. And on the basis of being clothed in Christ's righteousness, we endeavor to obey his commandments, not to gain righteousness, but because we've been made righteous. And being made righteous, we love righteousness. We pursue righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, is what the Beatitude says. And that's exactly what they were not doing. We, see, we need to see Christ being the goal of the whole thing. The goal of the law is to bring us to Christ and then in Christ to bring us to conformity to Jesus. So he's the end of the whole story. He's the goal of the whole story. Um, everything is bound up in him. He is God's way of righteousness. And it's, he is God's way of righteousness to everyone who believes. We obtain Christ by faith, not by law keeping, but by believing the gospel, by hearing the words of the gospel and believing it, we are made righteous. And the Jews were ignorant to this. Uh, they sought to establish a righteousness of their own, and they did not submit themselves to God's righteousness, that righteousness that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you all with me at this point? Well, this is, you know, gospel territory. We are really familiar with all these things. Um, and now what Paul does, beginning in verse 5, he, he goes back to the Old Testament. And he gives us a number of different quotations from the Old Testament uh, with reference to how uh, this righteousness of God that's not based on law but based on faith um, comes to believers. And he, he begins with, with a statement about um, Moses writing about the righteousness that is based on the law. And uh, it's hard to know exactly what he's saying here. It's perhaps Paul's giving some kind of a hypothetical. Um, okay, folks, if, if you want to talk about righteousness on the basis of the law that you're pursuing, well, let's see what Moses might have to say about that. And he quotes the book of Leviticus. He quotes chapter 18. And um, I believe it's verse 5. Let's just turn back there, Leviticus 18. Uh, here you have a part of what's often called the holiness code. Um, this 18, 19, uh, 20 are all sections in which the people of Israel are called to be holy. And uh, to be holy in particular in their relations sexually with others. That's, the, that's the, the heart of what this portion of scripture opens with. It says that the Lord spoke to Moses in uh, chapter 18 and verse 1 saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh your God and you shall not do in the land as they do in the land of Egypt. You should be free from practices of the Egyptians uh, where you lived when you were in bondage in Egypt and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. That's the place that you're going to. So the practices of the Egyptians, where you came from, you're not to be doing them. The practices of the Canaanites, to where you're going, you are not to be doing them either. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules, keep my statutes, and walk in them. I am Yahweh your God. You owe nothing 
to the Egyptians to follow after their practices, their teachings, their instruction, their religious uh, notions. You owe nothing to the Canaanites to follow after their instruction, their teaching, their practices. You owe everything to me, the God of your salvation, that you should walk in my instruction, heed my words, do my laws. You shall follow my rules, keep my statutes, and walk in them I am. Yahweh your God. Again, based again on an on a established relationship of love. An established relationship of redemptive grace and power. Based on that, you shall be law keepers. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, in that context, um, there's really nothing strange. Obedience is just a consequence of the reality of divine redemption. Uh, you will live as you obey my commandments as a people redeemed by my love. The problem gets when you take the law and you begin to put it into a law code that is going to find merit and credit and acceptance with God apart from the redemptive context in which it's found. And uh, Paul's looking to tell them, look, if you're going to take Moses to teach that sort of thing, um, you know you don't keep these commandments in any measure of perfection. In any, I mean, that's what would really be required. If you want to turn this into a law code, then, again, redemption is not the basis of the relationship. God's act of grace is not the basis of the relationship. Your law-keeping is the basis of the relationship. And slip up, and you're done for. Slip up, and you're done for. If life is going to come at the end of keeping the law, and not so much come by the fact that I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you and brought you to myself on eagle's wings and um, done this work of salvation for you, then any point in which you are not obe obedient to these commandments, uh, you're pretty much done for. Of course, the law assumes you don't keep it perfectly. The law assumes that disobedience will, will come sooner or later. Who, who in the world ever loves God with all their hearts, mind, soul, and strength? Who in the world ever loves their neighbor fully, completely, as they love themselves. No, we're far too much bent upon our own on, on self-love, upon our own designs and desires, and we fall short of the glory of God again and again and again and again. Of course, the law also provided sacrifices, and it provided the basis of humbling oneself before the Lord in, in, in repentance. Um, but again, if you're going to take the law just as a strict legal code, to obtain righteousness, you really have to obey it in its fullness and in its entirety. Um, and so there's more to the question of how Moses presents righteousness than just based upon uh, the legal code. Um, the righteousness based on faith says, and here there's a refashioning of a passage that's found in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 30. Let's first look at Deuteronomy, then we'll come back to Paul in Romans 10. Back in Deuteronomy, again, it's the same Moses that's speaking. So he's not speaking of two different things. He's speaking of just the reality of how God calls us to follow him and, and live for him. And um, in chapter 30 and verse 11, he says this. He says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. It's not onerous, it's not meant to crush you, it's not meant to overburden you, neither is it far off, it's not inaccessible, 
It's not some mystery that you need to delve into. It's not in heaven that you should say, who shall ascend for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Again, it's not something that you have to uh, ascend the heights of the heavens to, to figure out what God requires of you. That's one of the real problems when people just look at the heavens, as we're going to see this morning, and this moon and the stars that he, he, obeyed, he ordained, and what does Psalm 8 says? They simply come to the conclusion, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you shall um, visit him. But the fact is, God has visited us. The fact is that God has brought redemption to us. The fact is that God has intervened into the affairs of men and nations. He's destroyed Pharaoh and his reign over the people of Israel. He's brought them out unto himself. Uh, And so God is a God who has not just said, come and seek me in heaven. He's come and he has condescended to human Um, the human situation. He's intervened into human history. We don't have to send into the heavens uh, to find out what God desires of us and wants from us. Um, It's not beyond the sea. That you should go and say, who will go over over the sea for us and bring it to us? You don't have to travel to the the ends of the earth. Again, God is drawn near. He's not remained far off and distant. He he has come in the might of his power to deliver you from Egypt, to bring you to himself, bringing you through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now he's going to bring you over the Jordan. He's given you his law, not that you might go on some kind of a... Uh, an expedition to the ends of the earth or into the heights of the heavens uh, to find out what God requires of you. The word, he says, is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you can do it. And he says, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commands of Yahweh your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And that again, it's all in the context of the accomplishment of God's redemptive love and power in the Exodus, and what He's done to bring this nation out of Egypt to the borders of Canaan to enter in to enjoy the good and pleasant land, the land that flows with milk and honey that He's promised to them. And the point is, again and again and again, it's what God's done, not what they've done. It's what God has achieved. It's not what they achieve. What they're called upon to do is simply to respond in love. To respond in love. To commandments that are for their good. And commandments that are not too hard for them. It's commandments that are not necessitating. Ascending to the heavens or coming down to the earth. Or or, um, going over the ocean to find it in some far-off place. And you see, it's all that language of what God has done that now in the new covenant with Jesus coming now takes on a wholly new sense of divine intervention. What God's done to deliver us from our sins. This whole matter of this not being too hard for us is a matter of what God has achieved on our behalf. And what God has achieved on our behalf, he calls upon us to receive by faith. And receiving what he's done for us by faith, then 
to love him and serve him and walk in his ways and fear him and keep his commandments and statutes and rules. But all based upon what he has achieved for us and not what we have achieved for ourselves. And Paul's saying basically the same situation that pertained to Israel in their relationship to God, everything based upon redemption from Egyptian bondage, everything based on divine plan and purpose and preservation of the nation, bringing them into Canaan, winning their wars and fighting their battles for them, all that God did for them and that they must receive by faith really does apply to the situation that is today. The righteousness that's based on faith says, and here Paul takes Moses' words and now he interprets it in a new covenant context, in the context of what Christ has done, what Christ has achieved. The righteousness that's based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? And he interprets that as saying, that is, to bring Christ down. And now instead of going over the seas to the ends of the earth, he, he interprets this now as, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. See, God's intervened in a, in a new way. He's not gone down into Egypt to deliver his people out from bondage, to bring them into a, a, a new land. He's descended from he sent his son on a mission of mercy from the glory he had with him from the foundation of the earth to come into this world to die the sins the, the death our sins deserved and to be raised from the dead and ascended into the heavenlies that he might be lord of all things and it's in the face of that to, to say that failure to believe in Christ who died for us the Christ who rose for us the Christ who reigns for us but to say we're going to find another way of self-righteousness, obtaining something for ourselves that is outside of what God has done for us, but is what we achieve for ourselves, Paul says that's like bringing Christ down from the throne of his majesty. The one who came and descended from the glory he had with his father to go to the cross and die, that he might be ascended and, 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 and placed above all things. It's to say we don't need that Lord who's ascended into glory as Lord of all things. He ought to get down from the throne because that throne means nothing to us. That Christ who died and rose and ascended, it means nothing to us. And if we look to say we don't need him, well, let's, let's, let's do it for ourselves and uh, you know, we'll go down into hell for ourselves. We'll, we'll try to attain some sort of a, a, a benefit from our own uh, sufferings, perhaps, uh, something of the abyss of sufferings. Uh, in the Old Testament, something of the Sheol, uh, something of the descent into, the, into Sheol had to do with the sufferings that we endure in this life. Maybe Paul's calling upon the language of descending into the abyss with the reality that we've descended into Sheol when we're immersed in, in, in sufferings. And certain people think, well, it's the way we weather the storm of this life. It's the way we achieve for ourselves some um, some benefit from the sufferings of this life. Well, Paul interprets it in the light of bringing Christ up from the dead. Um, he didn't need to die and be buried for us. We'll, 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 we'll do what he did for ourselves. 
we'll achieve what he did for ourselves. I think that's fairly the area of concern that Paul is addressing. That's where he's moving. It's a question of looking to be your own savior. Looking to take the place of the Christ who went down into the pit for us and during the sufferings of the guilt of our sins and who ascended into heaven having achieved that salvation for us it's simply to disregard him it's to bring him down from the throne of his glory it's to say he he didn't didn't need to die he didn't need to suffer and Paul says that uh, the righteousness of faith doesn't do any of that it's content with what God has done it's content with the savior, savior God's provided, with the salvation that he's come to bring, just as the people of Israel ought to have been content with the deliverance that they had received from Egyptian bondage and God's protection, preservation with them uh, throughout their period of wilderness wanderings and the fact that he was going to win the victory for them. Everything that they were called upon to do was based upon faith. It was based upon trusting in this God. And now that this God again has come into human history and he's worked in Christ and his death and resurrection, we can not find a way into heaven for ourselves, looking to negate what he has achieved and accomplished for us. We need to submit to God's righteousness in the cross, in the resurrection, in the throne of Christ's glory, by trusting in him. And so what does the righteousness by faith say? Well, it doesn't say... We're just going to neglect what God's done in Christ and be our own saviors. It says, the word that is near you, just like the word that God gave to Israel, it's near you, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart, that word of faith that we proclaimed. Again, just as Israel was called upon to choose life and not death, they're called upon to receive um, what God had had achieved for them, and not what they would achieve for themselves. They were called to faith, they were called to trust. So we are called by the word of faith, to believe. And then Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth. Again, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Paul takes up that language of the word that's near you in your mouth and in your heart to address what Christian salvation consists in. Now, it's the confession with the mouth and it's the faith of the heart. He does this in the way that he, in verse 9, begins with the mouth and then goes to the heart and then in verse 10 he, he transposes that he goes the opposite direction begins with the heart and then ends with the mouth uh, but both of them are needed both of them interact with one another the faith of the heart and the confession with the lips and he says in verse 9 because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart One believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And so it's the faith of the heart and the confession of the lips that bring the the certainty of the knowledge of our salvation. Because again, the, the lips are the great interpreter of the heart. What's in my heart this morning you do not know. It's known to me. And me alone. Until I choose to open up my mouth and start speaking. Then you say, wait a minute. I'm listening to his words. And you know what? I think he loves God's, God's word. I, I think he, he really appreciates Jesus and what he's done. And, and you see, you can, 
understand and uh, interpret the state of my heart by the words of my lips. You can read my heart from what I say. And Jesus says that the same in, in the book of Matthew. He says in chapter 12, um, let's turn to chapter 12. You have the same relationship between the lips and the heart. Jesus says in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in the heart finds its way to the lips. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for your words will be justified, or by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Because again, it's out of the heart that mouth that the mouth speaks. The words of our lips speak to, forth the reality, the meditations of our heart. That's why Psalm 19, as we're going to study that, uh, the psalmist prays oh, that the words of my mouth as well as the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight it's both the words uh, that interpret it is the words that interpret the heart so what the, what the mouth confesses before men, Jesus said the confession that we make is not some secret confession it's not some private confession it's confession that declares before the world that I belong to Christ that I have a faith relationship to Jesus Christ, that I believe him to be the Son of God who came into this world on a mission of mercy to seek and to save the lost. And it's that, it's, 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 that verbal confession is something essential to Christian faith. That's why Jesus says, if you will not confess me before men, I will not confess you before, before my Father. Uh, Christian faith confesses. And so Paul draws those two things together. The confession of the mouth, that Jesus is Lord. And again, it's the Lordship of Christ that becomes the confession of our mouths. That he's the one that sits upon the throne of God's glory, and we must be submissive to him. He is Kyrios. And that he, I think we work Kyrios, it's translated Lord in our English Bibles. And we're talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses. I think it's some 600 times in the Septuagint that that word translates the, what we call the Tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters that uh, they get Jehovah from, uh, putting the vowels of Adonai to it. But uh, we, uh, I, I always say Yahweh or, or Yahweh. To me, that's uh, far more likely that that's how that name of God, that covenant name, was pronounced. And I think that the way in which uh, it's pronounced has some resonance because uh, it's all words, it's all letters, it's all uh, expressions of, of a name in which breath is, is, there's the breathiness to the name. Uh, God is spirit. And, and I think the name itself is, is, is expressive of the fact of his spiritual nature, um, that God is spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But whether that's accurate or not, the, the point is to call Christ Lord 
is to identify him with the Yahweh of, of Old Testament um, uh, religion, uh, the religion of Israel. Uh, the God who redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage, Yahweh, is the God who's incarnate in the person of Jesus. That Yahweh took human flesh. The God of Israel has come in history. The God in Israel went to the cross and died for our sins. There is an identity of Jesus with Israel's God, with Yahweh. And we confess him, just as the Israelites confessed their alliance and allegiance to Yahweh. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one, and you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That was a daily prayer that they prayed twice a day in Israel. That's something that was tantamount to a confession. They confessed their faith in Yahweh as their God. And we confess our faith in Jesus as our Lord, as God incarnate, as Israel's God come in human flesh to save us from our sins. And so you see what's involved in this whole matter of confession is not just uh, giving lip service to Christ, it's giving allegiance to Christ. It's confessing him with our lips and believing in our hearts that he's not some dead person of history, He's the living Lord of glory. God has raised him from the dead. We can't live and think as if we don't have anything to do with Christ. We have everything to do with Christ. He's the one who will judge the living and the dead. We're going to appear before him as he separates the sheep from the goats. We're going to give an account to him. And knowing that, we look to give an account to him every day. He is our Lord. He is the living Lord. So it's not just a question of you know, praying a prayer on one occasion or giving a nod to, to, towards Jesus or signing a decision card or any of the ways in which people think they've given themselves to Christ. It's a question of daily commitment to the one who you know to be the Lord of the universe. Again, there's never perfect submission, but yet there's the principal submission. He is my Lord. He is my God. I worship and I serve him with all my being. And so it's those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. Paul says, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. Again, that's the point of the whole preceding section about justification. It comes by faith. But it's a faith that is not just surface. It's a faith that's not just notions. It's a faith that's not just ideas. It's a faith that's within the heart. It's deep within the soul. The commitment to Christ is, is made a reality. With the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses what we know in our hearts and are saved. And then he quotes again another scripture. I believe it's Isaiah 28 at this point. He says, For everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Going back to the earlier part of the letter where he kept making that assertion. There's no distinction. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. All are saved in the same way. Through faith in Christ, he is the one who, without the law has reconciled us to God through his death and his resurrection. 
No distinction. The same Lord is Lord of all. Lord of Jew and Lord of Gentile, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, whether Jew or Gentile. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's a quote from Joel. Book of Joel chapter 2, when Joel speaks about the Spirit being poured out on who? On a bunch of Jewish people in the synagogue? No. The Spirit's going to be poured out on all flesh. All flesh. Everyone upon whom the Spirit falls of all the nations of the earth, all flesh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, let me pause here. Actually, our time is nearly gone this morning. Are <laughs> comments or questions? I know a little bit about the way he interprets the Old Testament scriptures is just a little bit hard to you know, fully grasp. But again, I think what Paul's doing is he's looking at Israel's situation. He's looking at the way that they were saved before God and he doesn't see a legal system that got them right with God. That didn't, didn't bring them out of Egypt and it wouldn't have brought them into, into Canaan if they had simply been law keepers. God had a covenant with their fathers and he loved them without regard to any righteousness that they possessed. He loved them freely. And his heart was towards them. And he brought them out of bondage by his power, not theirs. By his goodwill and intention, not theirs. By his commitment to fulfill his promises, not by their desire to know him. God, God worked powerfully, sovereignly, freely, graciously, and the point is, God's done something like that again in the New Covenant. This New Covenant salvation. And for people to just look at it and say it doesn't matter that Christ has come. That heaven has opened. The Son of God has come forth. The Spirit of God has been given. The death of Christ has reconciled and achieved that, that which only God could do to bring us to himself. And just to ignore the fact he died for us and he was raised and he's seated at the right hand of God. Simply to ignore what God did. It's to say we're going to go on a, on a, on a search for righteousness on our own. By our own. Traveling the world. Our own assaults upon the heavens. Then God's come and he's made himself known and he's intervened. But let me just pause and say, any comments or questions? I was hoping to get through the next paragraph. This is an interesting thing that occurs in the next paragraph. is that Paul quotes Psalm 19. Psalm 19 in the, in the sense of... Um, Well, it's in the words of verse um, verse 18. But I've asked, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Have they not heard what? Well, they've heard the message. We've been going from Illyricum to from Jerusalem to Illyricum, making this whole uh, wide sweep amongst the nations of the Gentiles, bringing the message of the gospel to them. And uh, Paul seems to think that what he's done has some relationship to the fact that 
their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And of course, back in Psalm 1, that's a wordless declaration of God's glory through the things he's made, his handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Strange application of Psalm 19 to the gospel enterprise. But I point you to it because I'll try to give a little bit of explanation in the morning worship how that could be, that Paul would make that assertion. What is there about the general revelation of God in all creation that uh, declares something of the gospel? I think the answer has something to do with what sometimes gets called pre-evangelism, the way in which people come to see their neediness before God and come to be prepared for the fact that the gospel is God's way of, of um, bringing us the knowledge of himself. There's something that resonates in the hearts of men, in the hearts of those men and women who do not know Christ when the gospel is proclaimed. And that's a lot of times something we don't really um, understand is that we're not bringing a message to the world that they have no frame of reference to receive. You know, just talking about events that happened 2,000 years ago in a small place of the earth uh, where this man Jesus died in, under the Roman authorities, and there's very little that we, that, you know, of course relates to present concerns. This is not international news. This is not something they're going to see on television or be exposed to in the media. But you know what's very, very interesting about the media is that there's things that exist in the world that ought to be made known that no one has any clue about. And sometimes those things are far more significant and far more important than the things that the news, the news uh, media determines that they want to cover. You know, they're they're going to make uh, things that happen in Ukraine and Gaza the point of daily news all the time. But the stuff that's happening in Sudan doesn't get any play at all in Darfur nothing we hear about it the, the famine in the Horn of Africa that's gone on for years who knows about it um, the, the stuff that's happened in Nigeria of Christians being slaughtered Lord's Day by Lord's Day as they meet who, who hears about those things it's very very selective what people want to make uh, a matter of concern but God clearly has made a matter of concern that does get confronted by everyone whether they consider it or not and that's the fact that he made the world and everything that's in it. And he's Lord of heaven and earth. And he's borne witness to that reality by the creation itself in which those things are clearly seen. And our problem is, just like we don't consider the things that happen in the world that's not on the nightly broadcast, we don't consider what's before our very eyes. We're just too caught up with ourselves. And when we come with the message of the gospel and we call people to consider God, we call people to consider their accountability to God. There's something in them that they're not even aware of, perhaps, but will resonate within their souls because they are in possession of the revelation that God has given of himself where every eye sees and every ear knows and every heart is confronted with the fact of the world that God has made. To see God's glory in it, to see God's goodness in it. And to be brought to the place where they raise some questions about their place in it. And even as the psalm writer says, what I consider the heavens, the works of your hands, the moon, the stars that you have ordained. It's when I've considered it. It's not when I don't consider it. And not everybody considers it. But it's when I do consider it. When I make it a matter of contemplation and study 
and careful thought. Then you begin to ask yourself, what is man? That you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should visit him. And then you're kind of prepared for the explanations God's word gives. You're prepared for Torah and you're prepared for gospel. You're prepared for the word of God's grace that tells us how we might be reconciled to him. Well, I kept you long and uh, thank you for your attention and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time to consider uh, this portion of Romans and the Lord. We know there's difficulties in understanding Paul's uh, quotes of the Old Testament and just how he sees so much in it that um, it doesn't tell us how he, he sees it. And yet, Lord, we see the same things. We, we see the reality that when we try to construct a righteousness of our own, we simply have to ignore what you've done. We simply have to ignore that you've entered into human history, that you brought about the exodus, you brought about redemption through your Son. Christ has come, he has died, he has risen, he has been raised, he has been exalted. And trying to form a righteousness of our own is simply to drag him off of his throne and say, it's nothing to us, he's not needed, We'll, we'll reign in his place. When we see his suffering, we'll say, no, our sufferings are better than his. And they're more sanctifying or they're more beneficial or whatever it is that we think. We, we so pervert reality with our own musings and when we're not subject to the word of your grace. So we ask for forgiveness that we are so proud and presumptuous. Pray that we would be more humble before you. We would be more receptive and submissive to the word of, of, of the living God. And we pray, Lord, that as we gather in worship this morning, your presence would be known to us. As we fellowship with one another, it would be a joyful time of uh, conversing and, uh, and uh, catching up with one another. And uh, then we pray, Lord, that in all that transpires in the remainder of our day together, uh, you would draw near to us, you would bless us, you would do us good, and you'd glorify the name of your dear Son as we'd ask these things in his name. Amen.